And now, Dan Happel's Connecting the Dots. If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life. And I had to start again with just my children and my wife. I thank my lucky stars to be living here today. Where the flag still stands for freedom and they can't take that away. forget the men who died who gave that right to me and i gladly stand up next to you and defend her still today cause there ain't no doubt i love this land god bless the usa USA. today on connecting the dots i've got Carl Kanthak, and I met Carl down in uh, Tucson, Arizona. He was, uh, he's from the state of Washington. He's a small businessman in Southwest Washington State. Uh, he's been involved in the uh, expose, let's say, of all the phony uh, vaccine programs and, and the masking and the mandates and uh, he's been trying to expose this stuff for a long time. He's uh, an uh, elected school official. He's got a great background. And today he's going to be talking with us about why mandates matter. We are seeing all these damn mandates. And, uh, Michael, that is exactly what's going on. The mandates the forcing people to do things is exactly how they're accomplishing this stuff. And we got enough sheeple that'll actually go along with it, that uh, it's happening right around us. And uh, believe me, I agree with you. If, if just a handful of the people that uh, believe what we believe would stand up and show a little bit of backbone, we wouldn't have the problems we have. But I do I do add a little caveat to that because I do see a glimmer of hope. Uh, there's a lot more people uh, speaking out today than there were a year ago or two years ago. And it's because of guys like Carl. Carl goes around the country and he talks about all the things that are happening with the government forcing us to do things we don't want to do making us wear the face diapers, making us get the vaccines, all the things that they're trying to force down our throat and why we have to resist. And uh, Carl, thank you for being my guest today. I, you, you were a, a real breath of fresh air uh, when I saw you uh, a month or so ago in Tucson. And what you were talking about, I knew that we had to get you on air so that you could tell that to our listeners literally all over the world. We have listeners uh, literally all over the world, and they need to understand that not all Americans are brain dead. Not all Americans uh, are willing to just 
sell their soul to the devil and walk away and let uh, everybody else dictate the terms. We're here to be Americans like you are, Carl. Thank you for being my guest this morning. Welcome to the program. Well, uh, good morning, Dan. How's my how's my audio? Am I okay? Excellent. Yep. Good. Excellent. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for that comp those compliments. And uh, you know, it's it, this is nothing I'd actually intended to do. I was uh, uh, so in in 2011 in in Washington State. They were uh, they went to pass. They were going to revoke all of the vaccine exemptions, and I was uh, becoming involved on to the uh, uh, school board at that time. And and, and I'd seen a uh, uh, I'd seen a prep uh, a briefing about it, and I the news was all of the press releases in support of the legislation were exaggerating the exemption rate massively. Uh, you know, 30, uh, uh, six or 12 times more than the exemption rate was. And uh, so I contacted the Department of Health and said, why are you, you know, these are the wrong numbers. And then I got a runaround and uh, that was uh, whatever, 12 years ago, and I'm still at it now. And it's a, it's a pervasive and consistent theme is that there, you know, the, the, the elevator pitch on this is that the attack on school exemptions is to eliminate exemptions as a legal principle or precedent, so that as the uh, as the mandates are rolled out on adults, that they're not that exemptions are not available, and that the pediatric market was uh, laced up in the '90s, and that at that point uh, the pharmaceutical companies very logically said, "Well, we this is a fantastic business. Let's do this to the adults now." And when they looked at the adults that they had uh, acts, uh, control over, which was healthcare, they were only getting about 40% compliance and that all of the doctors, et cetera, uh, with the flu program, primarily the annual flu program, were exempting at rates of 60, 70% and more. And they were, so they started, they started with the health groups to mandate onto the healthcare workers. But then at the same time, you know, this is what we're, what we're experiencing right now is the culmination of healthy people 1990, healthy people 2000, healthy people 2010, healthy people 2020, and now we're they're working towards healthy people 2030. But uh, so what I've done, I, I you know this is an unusual. I don't normally do an interview type thing. Normally I do a presentation, and what I try to do is brief people, uh, oftentimes legislators, uh, you know exactly what's going on in the background because when a legislator is being given information by a state health officer who oftentimes is uh, an MD, maybe a PhD, they have a master's of public health, and they've got all this imprimatur of different uh, educational credentialism. And then also they're in various levels of state, uh, you know, county or city or state officialdom. Then they're, you know, and one of the things I say is where, you know, how many of these legislators in the back of their mind are thinking, I wonder if this guy is lying to me, you know, and uh, and unfortunately that that they are a significant amount of time. Certain percentage of them don't even know. I was in one. Uh, I was at a school board function uh, for the state. And I want to clarify today that I'm speaking as a private person. I'm not speaking in any official capacity. Um but uh, 
So I was at an event and was describing this. And one of the other school board members was a doctor. And after I made my little pitch, then he came up and said, well, if what that guy was saying was true, then I would agree with him that we don't have to get rid of exemptions. And he, because he was part of the medical associations, and that's when we get to my presentations, I, you know, I have that all structured out, but uh, because of what he'd been, how he'd been misled, then he was thinking that, oh, we have a crisis here and we need to get rid of exemptions. And that's what we've seen. And they've been trying to put this together. You know, there's a set of collections of the policies. If you look at uh, the formal adopted policies of these medical groups, um, primarily this part of it too, is the National Association of City and County Health Officers. They have formal adopted policy that gets rid of exemptions. It requires the entire ACIP schedule for everybody. They're calling for a national immunization information system registry. And then uh, also the, you know, the teens being able to consent for themselves. And when you package this whole thing up, then you end up with a cradle to grave, lifetime, monitored, mandated immunization program where your ability to access various aspects of civil society are conditioned on your compliance to that schedule. That, you know, uh, Carl, I did, you mentioned that organization. That sounds an awful lot like MACO. Uh, or NACO, the National Association of Counties. Um, They're affiliated, think, yeah. Yeah, people think these organizations are there to, uh, to serve them. And I'm a former county commissioner, so I, I saw this firsthand. I have never seen a more socialistic uh, control grid organization than the National Association of Counties. They have never seen a trough they didn't want to stick their head in. <laughs> they are looking, they are mining, they are working tirelessly to find a trough they can stick their head in. And uh, they they suck all the counties for all over the all over the country. And Montana was notorious. We had uh, uh, Mako, our county organization. They were so proud because they said we're. We're one of the top uh, uh, associations of counties in the entire NACO complex, National Association complex, and and we were, and it was because they were buying every single federal program, every single uh, uh, possible grant that was out there they could get their hands on. And somehow this was helping the counties, and all it was doing was providing uh, basically the rope to hang ourselves. And every time one of these programs came along, it had so damn many strings tied to it that, uh, you know, we'd literally have to give up our, our county to be able to sign on to this stuff. And I fought that tooth and nail when I was the county commissioner. And needless to say, I was like the number one enemy of the Montana Association of Counties. So, you know, when you speak out against this stuff, uh, they really have a powerful program to try to silence you. And I'll bet the same group that uh, does these uh, uh, county health officials is very much like that. Absolutely. And, you know, having been uh, on a, you know, in 
been on a board myself and then been to many, many board meetings. I can I can summarize pretty much every board meeting is we're doing a great job, but we could be doing better if we had more money. Mm-hmm. And it's been at pretty much every single meeting. And it's uh, uh, these groups and, you know, you have this and you, what, you, what you're describing there is they have uh, what's an IGA, intergovernmental agreement. And all of these different, uh, there is no free money. And so, okay, if we're going to give you this grant and in return for that, you have to do A, B, and C in order to stay in qualification for the grant. Right. And that's where, uh, you know, a tremendous amount of the COVID money is was contingent upon, uh, you know, matching and paralleling whatever the dictates were from the top in terms of the masks and the vaccine requirements and the six feet and all of these different criteria, you know, that was part of the qualification in order to receive that money. And there was just uh, staggering amounts of money thrown at COVID, which was how they were able to uh, buy that, you know, buy that compliance top to bottom through the system. And, uh, you know, so for example, in Washington state, many of the many of the uh, families were complaining that the school districts, you know, the school districts were re- required to follow the state. We have the office of the superintendent of public instruction and they were, they would dictate out. And then we have a risk pool for our insurance. And that, so the, the, uh, the stick was that if you did not follow the rules, then you were not going to be covered in any kind of a, you know, if somebody claimed that they got COVID at the school and then there was some sort of a, of a legal situation after that, that you would not be covered by the risk pool. And then later on, the they actually passed emergency rules that any school district that wasn't in compliance with the directions of the Office of the Superintendent of Public Instruction would have their funding proportionally uh, withheld based on the number of days that they were out of compliance. And you had them talking both sides, you know, one thing was, well, uh, RCW, our revised code of Washington says that, you know, school districts are independent and they're supposed to be responsive to the, to the families in the community. And yet uh, this was a real example of the lack of independence permitted by school districts at this time. And that's, you know, that's something that I don't, that's not really what I, what I discuss a lot, but, you know, the top down education, the, the funding, as you said before, because all of that is conditioned, then there's all sorts of requirements that have to be met in order for you to qualify for your money. And that's the way uh, that uh, I, I remember one speaker, I think it was Griffin, Ed Griffin one time was saying that the best way to take something over is to start donating to it and then suggesting, well, since we're giving you this much money, maybe we should get a seat on your board or something like this. And you can gradually take control of the system that way. But, uh, you know, so that's been a little frustrating is to see that, uh, you know, that because, you know, Washington state where the East and the West side are a lot different, both physically and politically. And there were places, counties, where there was no cases, there was nothing going on, and uh, and yet they were forced to comply to the same mitigation that was on the east side where you have, you know, King County, which is a metropolitan area, Seattle, and these uh, highly dense urban populations 
where there's two different, uh, you know, completely different uh, set of conditions so that, you know, if you've got a school district out in the middle of nowhere, uh, along with a population that's out in the middle of nowhere, nobody's got COVID, then you, you would think that there'd be some variety or variability in the application of these rules. It would seem reasonable that we would do that. Well, they don't do that because, uh, frankly, the whole the whole idea is to create a kind of a waterproof box, as it were, uh, and and we're stuck in that box. And you know, this these mandates uh, they were always intended to be all inclusive and include everybody because that's what the whole thing is all about. Now we've got the World Health Organization. Um, and China, Joe Biden happened to uh, turn uh, much of our medical, I guess I would call it independence and sovereignty, uh, over to the World Health Organization. That's creating a lot of outcry. And I think it's time for Americans to stand up. And uh, Michael Dabari, uh, badass Uncle Sam, who was on just before us, um, he he mentioned that he's got a uh, a uh, document up on his website. Michael, do you want to pipe in on that? Yeah, sure. I'd like, I don't know, Carlo, specifically, I worked with, uh, well, the Deacon show that comes on on Thursday. Uh, he got together with some legal scholars when this all broke out, and they ferreted out. 15 federal statutes that were being broken by these mandates. I highly recommend uh, that you check this legal brief out. It's on my uh, site, badassunclesam.com, and um, peruse it, and hopefully some of the things on there uh, can help you and what you're doing in 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 looking at this i'll i'll just bring it up here real quickly so you can peruse it uh, uh it's not that long of a brief but it um it certainly goes to the heart of exactly what you're doing and again i'm i'm hoping that you know it'll be able to be of some assistance to you let me do the screen share here find it there we go well, and Carl, I, I uh, uh, while Michael's doing that, I, I want to mention to you, too, if you want, I mean, we've got Zoom meeting here. You're welcome to, using the screen share function, uh, put any documents or any information that you want to put on air, we can put up. And uh, as I said earlier, we've got actually a pretty... Uh, a pretty eclectic international audience that watches Patriot Soapbox. I've uh, I've been contacted by people from the UK, South Africa, Thailand, uh, literally all over the world that uh, watch these programs. And uh, I can tell you that uh, we've got a lot wider reach than a lot of people would imagine. Yeah, that's great. Well, after Michael's done, then I can just go ahead. I'll pull up the slides from... Uh one of the talks that's uh, been real well received and th this one if you know if you go through that um well i'll let michael finish and then i'll describe yeah, what i yeah. do before i introduce 
Yeah, indeed. It's just a we're you know going through. It shows where our rights originally came from. It's specifically yes. uh, bringing up the constitutional rights that we have that they are out breaching with because mandates are not laws. Correct. And primary and of course the ultimate of the law is the Constitution, but this ferrets out the uh, the laws they're breaking in the Constitution. They're bypassing, and once you bring this up to them got a little story well if i got the floor here i'll reiterate to you it stayed up when these mass mandates first came out and uh there's an open inner market right across from the street from me where i do my street theater and i walked into that open inner market and uh the manager of the market comes up says you have to wear a mask in here i said it's an open inner market you don't yeah. have to wear a mask. I said, I'm not going to wear one. This is stupid. She goes, if you don't wear one, I'm going to call the police. I said, well, do it before I do. Well, she did call the police. The police come out. I says, what exactly are you going to ticket me for? He goes, trespassing. I go, trespass. I says, I'm in here to buy some cinnamon-covered pecans. How am I trespassing? The vendor's not throwing me out. I'm not disturbing anybody. So how are you saying I'm trespassing? Uh, well, you're because the manager, you got to wear the mask. I said, good. Then show me the code for the mask. Show me the legal code mm -hmm. for the mask. Oh, oh, oh. Well, if I do that, I'm a, we're going to take your rig and I got to arrest you and we take you to jail and I got to, good. Okay. Do it. Show me the code. Mm. He, and he, back, I, well, I'm, you, you, sorry, you got to leave, sir. Show me the code. I says, what you're <laughs> doing. And I looked at him. I said, right now, what you're doing, I'm going to call the cops on you. You're breaking Section 18, Code 241 of the U.S. Constitution, the preparation of rights under color of law. You just threatened to arrest me for something there's no law against. I say, you just broke the law, and I can have you thrown in jail for 10 years. You, wearing that uniform. Now, please get out of the way while I pay for my pecans. <laughs> I love it. That's the power of the knowledge of the law. Mm-hmm. And knowing that these mandates are what they are, or just that, mandates, and you don't have to obey them, then, you know, it all falls apart. I'll threaten them to take them to court. I'll say, sure, let's go, please. I want to, let's bring the discovery. I want you to bring to court all mm -hmm. the scientific evidence you have that these masks work. And I'll bring up my scientific evidence where they don't. Let's go. Do it. And that's, I, I keep on telling people all the time, man, just stand up to these cowards and they will back down. But the legal brief, the legal brief is here. These are the mandate. All these laws are the ones they're breaking. Three of them are punishable by death. Hmm. So these are <laughs> wow. The, yeah. So when you, you let people know these things, that, that this is what's happening, this is what's going on, uh, then... Again, we have the power. It starts out, we the people. It ends, we the people. And everything is in the Constitution. And once you learn how that what that Constitution says and how to apply those laws, all these mandates and all these city ordinances and everything else, 
go against all these organizations we bring up from I don't care what it is from the you know from the IRS to the Board of Health to everything else they're all illegal mm-hmm. because they're not in the Constitution. But anyway, that's my rant. I just hope I wanted to help you out. Also, uh, I know I just sent you a little message about what's on Band.Video right now uh, about the uh, vaccines or about the mass mandates. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, I think you ought to peruse. Uh, there it is. I had it on up. Let me just, I'll just quickly screen share this for you. And uh, of course, it'll be up here if you want to play it a little bit. But this is uh, here. Thomas Messi reveals how insurance agencies were incentivized to push the deadly vaccines on clients. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the mandates too. So this yeah, is. Yeah, I've seen one. that one, Michael. It's excellent. Yep. Yeah. So. All right. That, thank you for letting me to pop in. Yeah, well, you had something, and I did want to get that up on screen. Thank you for doing that. Yeah. And we'll make sure that uh, our viewers download that information, too. So go to badassunclesam.com, and you can go on there and download that document. Uh, Carl, <laughs> what you've been talking about is – uh, exactly as Ed Griffin said, and uh, Ed, Ed and I are good friends, and so we work together on the Red Pill Expo together. But uh, uh, what he was talking about probably was uh, John D. Rockefeller. Most people don't understand how we went from a homeopathic medical system to a pharmaceutical system, and it happened around 1900. Uh, John D. Rockefeller, who incidentally, his daddy was a snake oil salesman, uh, and uh, John D. kind of grew up in that type of environment. But by 1900, he had such a bad reputation for being a kind of a shyster and a really, really nasty businessman that uh, he was getting a lot of pushback. People where, you know, people would uh, walk on the other side of the street when he had come down the street because they detested the man so bad. So he hired a New York, um, uh, well, at the time, I don't think they called it that at the time, but he was uh, uh, a New York um, um Crap, what's the term I'm looking for? Uh, to, to make John D. look like a better man than he was. Um, public relations, a, a, a New York public relations man. And uh, John D. told this guy, he said, look, I want you to come up with a plan to, to allow me to do something that makes my image better, but uh, the only caveat is at the end of it, I've got to be able to make money. And I will pay out uh, an unlimited amount of money, but the, the only caveat is I've got to bring more in than I, than I put out. But clean up my image. And so this guy came back with the idea that he should start giving money 
to uh, the different universities, places like uh, Harvard and Yale that have medical schools mm. and uh, give them money so that uh, to the medical schools so that they could uh, also, one of the requirements given the money to the medical schools is that somebody from uh, their organization, from the uh, Rockefeller organization, had to be put on the board of trustees of these various universities. And this was the very beginning of the whole idea of pharmaceutical drugs, because if you look at the original pharmaceutical drugs, they were all based on uh, petroleum. They used petroleum, and John D. was Standard Oil of Ohio, and uh, he immediately figured out ways to create pharmaceutical drugs that uh, they could pay for this whole program. He could end up making uh, tons of money. They could take over the medical schools, and therein they could take over the medical professions. And prior to 1900, we had an incredibly uh, sophisticated and very well thought out uh, homeopathic medical program for the universities. They were using food and natural herbs and natural things to cure disease, and they were being pretty effective with it. And uh, when he took over the pharmaceutical industry and incidentally, if you look at the Rockefellers, they uh, are major stockholders in virtually every pharmaceutical operation in the world. So that's how uh, Ed, Ed uses that in a lot of his talks. He talks about how John D. literally bought, bought out the medical profession, and it's still in effect today. If you look at who uh, controls the medical schools, who was the one promoting all the uh, so-called vaccines for COVID and all this, uh, guess what? It's the same people that started the whole process. It's a moneymaker. They've made trillions of dollars off of this scam. And uh, all I can say is that, boy, what smart guys that they can figure out a way to do that. Anyway, I, I want to give it back to you, Carl. Very good. Well, let me do this, and I'll go ahead and uh, share my uh, uh, – the uh, – so this was a talk that I gave um, – uh, the hidden agenda against school vaccine exemptions. And I did this one in November in Arizona. And uh, so in, in uh, let's see, we'll move this together. We'll move forward. There we go. Is that advancing? Yeah, it, it, okay. it is, it's advancing. Uh -huh. Perfect. Well, you know, and so you start off every talk with a little bit of humor. So the humor here was the uh, World Health Organization's uh, uh, shifting advice about the vaccine. And in May, it was 95% protective. June, it was 70. July, it was 50% protection. By August, there was no protection, but it reduces the spread. September, doesn't reduce the spread, but reduces severity. October, doesn't reduce severity, but reduces hospitalizations. November doesn't reduce hospitalizations, but you aren't going to die. And by December, they were admitting that you do die, but at least you go to heaven. <laughs> and uh, they certainly had a lot of uh, shifting on that. So my disclaimer is, of course, I'm not a doctor or a lawyer. Nothing is uh, uh, medical or legal advice. And if I slip and say lie or liar, I mean allegedly misrepresent. And again, I'm an elected 
official, but I'm speaking fully as a private citizen. So the background of the constant attack on school attendance, non-medical exemptions, is that it's not about low vaccination rates or risk to the students. Is that the true purpose of the attack on attendance, non-medical vaccine exemptions, is to eliminate exemptions as a legal principle and precedent as vaccine requirements are expanded onto adults. So 90% plus saturation of the pediatric vaccine market was achieved in the 1990s, primarily through the convergence of three factors, the school attendance rules, the 1986 National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act, and the 1994 uh, vaccines for children. So this is a uh, an appendix on the CDC that shows the vaccination coverage levels from 1962 two through 2009. And what I did is on the left side, you can see that uh, 62 to 85, and they're showing the DTAP was in the 67, you know, 62 was 67. So it's ranging 63 to 70%. They're showing polio in the 60, 59, 60%. And then the it wasn't the MMR at that time. The MMR hadn't come out yet in 68. But, you know, anyway, 40%, 30, 40% uh, un vaccinated groups all through that time period. And then on the right side is a blow up uh, expansion of the uh, 1991 to 2009. And you can see that after that, these uh, programs converged, you start getting the 93, 95, 96, 98 comes into the middle nineties. And then it's been in, uh, working its way upward from there. So at this time, less than one and a half percent of children have zero vaccines and the national exemption rate to school exemptions is only two uh, school vaccines is only 2.2%. And then I have the citation for this. So children 19 to 35 months old, this is a, and then at uh, the blue highlight, although the proportion of children who received no vaccines by 24 months was low, this proportion increased gradually. So it's 1.3%. This was released in uh, October, 2018. So we're running around 1% of kids have zero vaccines. And then the school exemption rate, this came out uh, April 22nd, 2022. The exemption rate remained low at 2.2%. So that undercuts this whole idea that there's a, any low rates anywhere. And what happens, the what they'll do is they'll use certain groups that measure poorly. That, you know, they'll look at a very small school. For example, my school, part of the reason I got involved in this is that the school district where I serve, we're a single school district, rural area, and, uh, you know, I, I, I was told that we had a 12.5% exemption rate in the kindergarten class. And I said, we don't have 12 kindergartners. And it turned out that one of the eight students had opted out of the chickenpox vaccine. But because one of eight is 12.5%, that gave my school a 12.5% exemption rate in kindergarten, which was uh, one of the manipulations they used to try to scare people into thinking that exemptions are being overused or abused and we have to get rid of them. So that uh, in those uh, the three three legged stool, then school attendance rules is that, uh, you know, in 1969, only 26 states had state level school attendance vaccine requirements. Washington's law did not even begin to implement until the 7980 school year. And that was my remembrance is that I moved to Washington state from another from California and never produced a vaccination record, graduated from high school and didn't remember that uh, this was ever an issue. So from 70 through 80, there was a coordinated uh, plan then 
A, uh, you know, during the 70s, a methodical and systematic campaign was conducted to extend uniform requirements to all states. And it was initially pitched with the idea, we just need to know who is and who isn't vaccinated. So if there's an outbreak, we can tell which kids, you know, they need to be watching for this. And uh, that was some Arizona stuff that was specific to them. Uh, the next thing was the liability, the removal of liability to the corporation. So they were being sued into uh, bankruptcy in the late 70s and early 80s. And they went to the uh, they went on to the government and said, if we don't have liability protection, we're going to stop making vaccines and vaccines are considered to be a national security issue. So H.R. five, five, four, six. National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act of 1986. Now, some people will tell you that, uh, oh no, vaccines are basically harmless, but you know the uh, the fact that their injury—it's called the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act, not the National Parents Are Imagining Their Children Were Harmed by Vaccines. And then the second part of that was the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, which is what took the liability away from the companies. So if you are injured, you have to apply to this uh, special system that they have. Next thing was government purchasing. So in 1994, the vaccine uh, vaccines for children program. And what that does is if once a vaccine is added to the recommended schedule, the America, the uh, uh, advisory committee on immunization practices, if they recommend it, then the government will buy as many doses as is required to make sure every child is vaccinated. Uh, that don't have insurance uh, or any other way to pay. And then there's this money is not subject to any congressional approval. So that 90% plus saturation of the pediatric vaccine market was achieved again through these three legs, school attendance rules, the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act, and then vaccines for children. So this set of conditions created an ideal pharmaceutical environment. School attendance requirements results in zero advertising costs to the companies. Vaccine promotion is instead paid for by the taxpayers. That's why uh, you've never seen an advertisement for the Merck MMR on TV. Uh, no corporate liability for injuries or deaths is that the NVICP protects the companies from liability lawsuits. And this is the that's a major expense in pharmaceuticals once they're on the market. Injured parties are instead forced to apply to the Department of Health and Human Services, where a Department of Justice lawyer special master acts as a judge. Department of Justice lawyers defend the HHS and then use a special set of legal rules that are prejudiced against the plaintiff. So there's no discovery, there's no interrogatories, you're very limited, and then they're allowed to use hearsay testimony. And then in the rare cases when compensation is provided, it's taxpayer funded. So every vaccine sale has a 75% surtax that goes into a compensation fund. And then so when you do get paid, it's not paid out of the pharmaceutical companies. And that's why uh, you, you you know you've never seen an advertisement where you injured by the MMR on TV. Now there are vaccines that aren't in the childhood program, the uh, the primarily the shingles vaccine, and you will see ads for the shingles you know litigation on TV uh, late night TV because that one's not recommended for children. Now pharma is trying to duplicate the vaccine liability protection in their conventional drugs by a theory called preemption. So. They want to assert that if the FDA has approved it, you can't sue them. So they they love this uh, no liability so much. They're trying to expand it from vaccines into the conventional pharmaceuticals. Uh, <clears throat> now, the next is that the Vaccines for Children program results in zero price pressure. The Vaccines for Children is automatically funding 
And uh, we saw that when they moved the COVID shot from the emergency use into vaccines for children. So the CDC Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, ACIP, voted unanimously to add the COVID vaccines to the Vaccines for Children program. That's what they did first, and then they added it to the childhood recommended schedule. So that uh, guaranteed a government purchase of the recommended vaccines, and then the recommended schedule puts it into the liability so there's speculation that including the COVID vaccines to the recommended schedule may not be for health purposes, but liability protections and business reasons. So normally, so right uh, on the left side, the PREP Act, that was the emergency use authorization that the vaccines were given initially. And then they're considered a countermeasure uh, and it's a countermeasure injury compensation program and it's no liability to the companies. And apparently they've only paid out three injuries. And I think it was a less than $5,000 total. I saw a report recently. I'm not up on that. Now, if we were in a conventional situation, then at some point the emergency use would end. They would get a, a formal approval and then it would be in the market, just like the shingles vaccine. If you're harmed, you're allowed to sue. Instead, they jumped it directly into the, the recommended schedule for children, and then that got them from one liability-free program to another liability program. And then they also put it in vaccines for children, which guaranteed government purchasing. Mm -hmm. So then what they did was, is uh, as soon as it went into vaccines for children, they quadrupled the price. And I love this, uh, the URL, Forbes, uh, forward slash, forward slash, Pfizer will raise the price of its COVID-19 vaccine almost fourfold. Uh, reveals unique feature of U.S. healthcare pricing. So if a person was cynical, you'd look at it this way. Pharma's been losing their mandates uh, on the adult population. Now, kids under 18 is about 25% of the population, and that's where they have the mandates. They're able to get mandates through school requirements. So, you know, when you're in business, you can only make money by either raising the price or increasing, you increase the transaction value or the transaction volume. Well, in this case, because they've lost all the lawsuits for the adult mandates and the demand is dropping through the floor, instead what they did was since they had a potentially a 75% loss in transaction volume, they increased the transaction price by 75% so they can still make the same amount of money. Because you can imagine if you're, you know, the board, uh, you know, if you work for Pfizer, you can't just go to the board and say, hey, we had a really great year and uh, you know we made 30, 40 billion dollars and next year we're gonna drop back to normal. That board is gonna insist on increasing profits. And then of course, Pfizer, you know, hundred billion dollars, this was in November 23, 2021. Uh, they're looking at that. Now, the next thing that about the, the uh, vaccines that make them uh, particularly lucrative is that uh, vaccines are not drugs, but biologics with no patent expiry. So there's no way that a uh, vaccine can become a generic. And what that means is there is, you know, normal, normal drugs about 14 years. Uh, I think that's what the term is. And then they have to reformulate it. So the result of these conditions is, is that Merck has been selling into the pediatric market, the same liability free, no advertising required early 1980s MMR formula at whatever they price they set for decades. Now, once pharma laced up the pediatric market, they logically desired to do the same to the adult market. And they looked at the adults that they have control over who were mostly healthcare providers and identified they were getting nowhere near the 95% compliance you get with the schools. 
And then this is just a an article here, the importance of influence of vaccination for healthcare personnel. Uh, despite the benefits of immunization, CDC estimates that only 40% of the nation's healthcare providers are vaccinated each year. And that's always been sort of a, uh, you know, mm. a tell for those of us that aren't in healthcare, which is that if it was, you know, if it was self-evident that vaccines are the best thing since sliced bread, wouldn't you expect every healthcare person to get every single one they could? And then this is a, uh, you know, this is a vaccine hesitancy and under vaccination are observed in all age groups. So this is showing uh, 2014 through 2019. And, uh, you know, and each year, this is the percent of, P of adults over 18 that aren't vaccinated. So it's 56, 58, you know, well over 50% of the people are not getting the flu shot every year. And of course, that's, uh, that's lost market uh, revenue potential there. So this recognition of the adult failure to take full advantage of the available vaccines caused the development of a collection of plans to be able to implement vaccine mandates on adults. A major component of these plans has been eliminating non-medical exemptions in the school age populations. And again, that is to eliminate exemptions as a legal principle and precedent. So here's a healthy people 2030. And they're saying that, uh, you know, the most recent data is 49% for a, an annual flu shot there. You know, they want to bump that up to 70%. And they're trying to find as many ways to do that. And then uh, they want to increase the proportions of adult age 19 and years and older who get all of the recommended vaccines. And then this was a program I found, uh, the National Adult Vaccination Program and this was in November, 2013. And it's a, uh, it was a conference. And then they came out with, you know, work group conference. And uh, so one of the things they were looking at is change policies to expand immunization rates, authorize vaccinators and venues. And so in the highlight there, mandate immunizations and uh, other opportunities to mandate immunization of adults may be identified and integrated with quality measures and initiatives. So they had uh, in this, uh, on the left box, you can see that they're showing that uh, baseline data, you have 25% uh, of non-institutionalized adults age 18 to 64 are a vac uh, have a flu shot every year. Their goal is 80% and then 90%, 90%. These are very aggressive objectives. And uh, so they're trying to figure out, well, how can we do this when people don't want the product? And then on the right side, it shows the contents from this con this uh, uh, <clears throat> conference, and you have uh, expand funding and reimbursement for adult immunizations. So that ties right into what Michael was showing, where the uh, incentives for a uh, provider that if your practice reaches a certain percentage of compliance, then you get uh, a bonus on all of the people in your group. They don't they don't call them bonuses; they call it reimbursement. And these are, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're getting reimbursements and uh, their bonuses for good practice. And then number two was uh, recommendation number two, leverage opportunities and health reforms to advance adult immunization. So we know that reform is a code word for, right? Mandate. So, yeah. So, well, so then it's like, okay, well, we're going to reform the this part of the health code. And by the way, if you want to qualify for this insurance, you have to be vaccinated. And then uh, <clears throat> compile, conduct, and disseminate research in adult immunization. So that's where you're trying to build this uh, 
you want to build a, a base of scientific information that says the vaccines are good for adults and then create a national registry for adult immunizations, number four. So that's when you get that, you know, you pull all these policies together and that's when you get that cradle to grave vaccination program I discussed earlier. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, so here's an adult vaccine access coalition. You know, this, this idea that there's a lack of access, I mean, you can pretty much get a vaccination on the drive-through at Burger King today. So it's it's not like, you know, anybody's walking around uh, wondering where can I get a vaccine at? And then uh, this group, you can look at the, you know, here's the A to W of the different participants in this, Alliance for Aging Research, American Academy of Family Physicians, and uh, goes down in association, association, national, and then of course, Merck and Moderna are in there, uh, National Association of City and County Health Officers, National Consumers League, blah, 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 Novavax, Pfizer, et cetera. So then, uh, you know, this is just uh, as a reminder to those of us that are adults that there's a bunch of shots that a lot of us aren't getting that ASIP would like you to get. And there's the scheduling. So you've got a flu shot. You know, they pretty much want us to repeat the childhood schedule uh, every 10 years or so. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, you know, we're all old enough that we got, you know, a polio, a couple of DTP and, uh, you know, maybe a smallpox. And that's all there was back then. Mm -hmm. And then here's, uh, you know, there's another page of that. So when you look at this, so virtually all medical vaccine administration, industry, professional trade organizations. So the American Medical Association, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American College of Obstetricians, et cetera. They have eliminating non-medical exemptions as formal adopted policy positions. So when somebody from the AMA comes in to testify in the legislature, you know, these are not disinterested people speaking from a, uh, you know, a, an unbiased position. This is a formal adopted policy of their organization. You know, and here's one of the strongest is from the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists. You know, it's clear that non-medical exemptions for immunizations uh, personal, philosophic, or religious endanger the health of the exempted and other individuals, communities, our nation. ACOG opposes non-medical exemptions. You know, which is crazy because none of those uh, ACOG, none of it, ACOG's clients are school-age kids. They shouldn't be, uh, mm -hmm. you know, dealing with any kind of significant number of expectant people. Then the, here, you know, this continues on the American Nursing Association, the American Academy of Family Physicians. All of these groups, again, have as formal adopted policy eliminating non-medical exemptions. And then the American Medical Association went so far as to actually say religious exemptions, and then they got a lot of pushback on that. So then they had to change that to non-medical because the you know religious, religious expression is strongly protected constitutionally. But the AMA has a, uh, a <clears throat> they have a litigation side. So the litigation center of the American Medical Association and state medical societies, what they will do is they will weigh in when there are legal cases, they'll do file amicus briefs to support, uh, you know, when somebody brings a, what is looking like a successful challenge to a vaccine mandate, then the AMA will wade in there and, um, so parallel to the industry associations are the public health employee associations who also have missions or public stances, published stances supporting the elimination of non-medical exemptions and the tightening of medical exemptions. 
So these include NACHO, the National Association of City and County Health Officers. And then, you know, there's just their policies, 1601, school and child care immunization, supports requirements that allow only medical exemptions. And then further on in the policy, it recommends that they want the full ASIP schedule. Uh, the Association of State and Territorial Health Officers uh, allow medical exemptions only. Uh, the Council of State and Territorial Epidemiologists, you know, again, against non-medical exemptions. And while they all have ties to pharma, perhaps one of the most blatantly captured is AIM, the Association of Immunization Managers. Every state has an immunization manager, and they have a specific uh, industry liaison. I need to get that reference up. But uh, so the head of every single state immunization manager department belongs to AIM, which is a blatant collaboration. And here's their corporate alliance members, Merck, Pfizer, Sanofi, all the usual suspects. So the medical industry and professional associations are philosophically opposed to religious exemptions. You know, when I was interacting with um, the uh, Washington State Medical Association and I pointed out I was, you know, the person knew that I knew they were misrepresenting the rates. And this guy says, well, it doesn't matter. The numbers don't matter. We have to get rid of these exemptions. And I said, well, people can't, he goes, people just can't pick and choose what they're going to do. And I go, well, actually... <laughs> I go, actually, you're wrong. That's the Constitution says we do pick and choose what we do. And if the numbers don't matter, then why don't you use the real ones? And uh, that that's actually why I'm still here now 12 years later. That really <laughs> made me angry. So here's here's why they have to, to fib so much, is that non-medical exemptions for religious and philosophical reasons are strongly protected federally under the U.S. Constitution, and the First Amendment of the Bill of Rights and most individual state constitutions provide equal or greater religious rights protection. You know, and, and on this philosophical part, you know, the uh, uh, conscientious objectors uh, in both the Korean and the Vietnam Wars, you know, they went to court and they were able to get a, you know, they said, look, I don't have, I'm not belonging to an organized church, but my personal beliefs are equivalent to that. And then the government started to recognize that. And so that's why in some states, they'll have a uh, specifically called out, like, for example, Washington was one of the last states to add it. And so they incorporated these new legal distinctions. And so Washington has a religious, a religious membership, which means if you're part of a group that doesn't uh, do any medical care at all, they also have the philosophical and a personal belief. So they hit all of the touchstones in 1980 when they added their law. Now, when you get back and then some of the states that have had laws for a long time on the East Coast, right, then the, the you know, where they've been states for a long time, then they might only say religious. But when after the uh, philosophical was added or when, you know, these lawsuits in the 60s and 70s saying, or 50s, 60s and 70s saying that there was equal rights, then they would say, well, our religious encompasses those other personal beliefs. Now, legislation impacting constitutional rights trigger a judicial concept called strict scrutiny. And the state, uh, uh, they, don't want, they don't want strict scrutiny. They want to you know, have a, just a utilitarian basis. Now, strict scrutiny is a form of judicial review that courts use to determine the constitutionality of certain laws. Strict scrutiny is often used by courts when a plaintiff sues the government for discrimination. To pass strict scrutiny, the legislature must have passed the law to further a compelling governmental interest and must have narrowly tailored the law to achieve that interest. So 
That's why you have an exact, you know, in order to show that compelling state interest, they have to exaggerate how many people are using exemptions and then exaggerate how dangerous the infections are that the vaccines are targeted at. And that's why things like, you know, when I was a kid, we had measles parties. Nobody was, you know, our parents, when they heard somebody had measles, they'd run us over there hoping we get it and get it out of the way so they can check it off the list. You know, we've gone from that to just sheer terror every time somebody suggests that there might be a case. Now, under equal protection, when a statute discriminates against an individual based on a suspect classification, that statute will be subject to either strict scrutiny or immediate scrutiny. There are four generally agreed upon suspect classifications, race, religion, national origin, and alienage. Now, the free exercise clause withdraws from legislative power, state and federal, the exertion of any restraint on the free exercise of religion. Its purpose is to secure religious liberty in the individual by prohibiting any invasions there by civil authority. So there is also substantial federal 14th Amendment and state protections for access to education. So we have uh, it's uh, FAPE, a free and appropriate public education. And Washington State recently had uh, a couple of years ago, we had the uh, McCleary decision where a small school district sued the state because they felt that you know there's a disparity between rich school districts and not as wealthy school districts as in terms of their the quality of the education there so the Washington state supreme court came out and said that um, it is the state's paramount duty to provide that education well then if there's a paramount duty then the converse of that is that that means that the citizens have a paramount right to that education so then that makes exemptions revoking exemptions a heavy lift it concerns individuals and families who are in a specifically defined suspect class religious persons. Then the suspect class religious persons are in the process of their free exercise of a basic rights clause. And then whether or not they are allowed that free exercise will determine whether they have their 14th Amendment guaranteed right to a free and appropriate public education. So this is why the term vaccine hesitant was developed part of this is because responsible legislators understand they have obligation to educate all citizens regardless of vaccination status. And when they understand, uh, you know, and a legislator, of course, when a mom comes in with a three ring binder full of vaccine studies and all of the, you know, the health possible health impacts and or potentially has an injured child and they come in and sit down with them and explain, we're not going to start you know, we're not going to resume vaccinating the majority of people that exempt. Remember back that statistic, it's only 2.2%. The majority of people that aren't vaccinating have had a personal experience with some type of an injury and they're not going to resume vaccinating or start vaccinating because the law changes. And when the legislators understand that, then they realize, oh my gosh, you know, this is not about getting vaccination rates up. You can't get them up because there's nowhere to go. We're already at 97, 98%. There's only 2.2% exemption. So there's no appreciable uh, increase that we can be achieved. And then the legislators start to understand, okay, what are we going to do with these kids? Because these families aren't going to do it. There's already crushing pressure to vaccinate. So they start coming up with plans. Well, maybe we can have a separate system for those that don't want all the shots, or we can have districts, et cetera. Well, that goes back to that, uh, uh, Dan, I think you said, where it needs to be a watertight box. You can't have mm -hmm. exceptions of things. One of the things I would point out in Washington, you know, we have uh, 
because of our rural nature, you know, we have 285 school districts and some of them are as small as eight people because you have an island in the Puget Sound. You can't throw, you know, a kindergartner on a boat and then run him an hour to a school on another island. So they have set up these schools in these, you know, really remote places and those school districts. So I was just suggesting, well, if you require, you know, if you're going to kick out any kid that doesn't have all of the injections, then some of these school districts aren't going to make it. I communicated with them and they were sharing the same thing. So I said, well, why don't we just put a threshold on there that below a certain population in a district uh, or number of students, then it shouldn't apply. Well, then that freaks them out because they don't want, again, they want the watertight box. So when a legislator properly understands that anti-vaxxers who are more accurately, usually ex-vaxxers will not resume or begin vaccinating if the exemption ends, they start to make mitigation plans. Now, legislators have explored alternative education options, such as exempt teachers ex uh, instructing exempt students. Now, public health cannot permit that to happen because it legitimizes not vaccinating as a choice. That's the <laughs> real reason they don't want to do it. And uh, so after SB 277 passed, so California eliminated their exemptions in 2016. 2015, it actually didn't kick in until 2016. Only did one grade at a time. I have a whole nother talk about that. That was a uh, that was a uh, that was a public relations so that they could say they got rid of exemptions without kicking anyone out of school. Anyway, so after SB 277 passed uh, on Facebook, a citizen was concerned that exempting students will no longer be attending school or receiving school lunches. And the uh, sponsor was uh, Senator Dr. Richard Pan. He said that most families of students with uh, the exemption will eventually get their children vaccinated when they wake up to the truth, thanks to SB 277. So that was a direct misrepresentation because that's not what happens. And then he, this, there were some other articles that back that up that, you know, they, they want to say that it's hesitant, but remember less than, you know, only about 1% of kids have zero vaccines and then it's only 2.2%. So who, where's the hesitancy? You have 99% compliance with kids up to 24 months. So there's 1% maximum hesitancy. And then what happened when they uh, when they did pass that law? Well, in uh, 2014, 15 to 15, 16, they lost 34,000 students that year. And then the California K-12 schools dropped every year since then because SB 277 implements one year at a time. They didn't just go and wipe out the exemptions for everybody. And that the objective of public health is not just to create a legal and regulatory framework that eliminates exemptions, but also to poison the choice socially in the community. Mm -hmm. So this was related to the COVID vaccine and uh, CNN's Leanna Wen, the unvaccinated should not be allowed to leave their homes. And they have consistently tried to portray anyone who does not want all of the shots to be, uh, you know, a scientific and medical Luddite. Now, the challenge for the people getting rid of exemptions has been the vaccination rates are extremely high with the exemptions in place. And so to overcome those strict scrutiny burdens, i.e. show a compelling state interest and achieve that goal of restricting exemptions, promoters are forced into various forms of misrepresentation. So these include data manipulation, misinformation regarding infection risk, vaccine product capacity and safety, other critical information and phony or inapplicable outbreak, mod outbreak modeling that is contrived to convince legislators that use of exemptions by parents is high and endangering public health. 
So uh, one exaggeration is the impact of vaccines and school rules on mortality rates. So the general perception by the public is if we didn't have school rules, then we would have waves of infection, you know, crashing from one coast to the other and uh, all kinds of uh, <laughs> dead kids. Now, you know, Washington before school rules and many vaccines, I moved from another state to Washington and graduated from high school without ever providing vaccine information. When all the drama started around schools, I did not remember schools being infection hubs. But instead, I remember lots of kids having perfect attendance. And, uh, you know, I, when's the last time you ever heard about a kid with perfect attendance? Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, uh, it's not been my experience lately. So what I did is I found this report, Washington State, 1920 to 1982. And in the 1970s, school attendance rules were not a response to high mortality rates in school age population or any populations. Routine childhood illnesses stopped being fatal post-World War II after the introduction of penicillin and other antibiotics into clinical practice. Children with access to nutrition, sanitary living conditions, and a pediatrician tolerated the infections very successfully. Mortality was centered in the disadvantaged. So here's measles mortality in Washington state, and it dropped to zero in 1968, 12 years before we had school rules. Mm -hmm. And you can see, uh, you know, the worst year um, was 1924, okay? And then it drops down. And then, uh, you know, you look at 43, 44, we're, we're at zero post-World War II. And that's when penicillin made it into practice. Penicillin was discovered accidentally in the late 20s. And then it got into full production during World War II. And then once the war was over, it went into civilian practice because these, you know, the, the vaccine-targeted inf infections were not typically directly fatal. It was the complications from that. So usually a pneumonia after measles or uh, with smallpox, you'd get a, an infected, uh, the skin infections that would come from the pustules, et cetera. So, but in our case here, you know, in, uh, on the, in 59 and 60, you had, you know, 30,000 cases with a single infection, excuse me, with a single mortality over that winter. Now there was a, uh, one of the, the best pieces of research is that in, Measles mortality, a retrospective look at the vaccine era. So this was done in 1975 by the CDC of Roger M. Barkin, uh, who was a uh, worked at the CDC, a retrospective look. So he went through and looked at measles. They were trying to determine what the impact of the vaccine had been, et cetera. And so he calculated that the true death to case ratio can be expect estimated at one death per 10,000 cases. Now, that was across the entire population. And then then the map on the right side, you can see that there, you know, that shows uh, 58 to 63, that's the pre-vaccine era. And then 68 to 70 is the what they considered that the post-vaccine era. And then, uh, so there was a 6.7 times difference in mortality between counties with high poverty rates. And also, uh, you know, if you look at, that those the the dark lines are where the states had the higher mortality rates. Well, that kind of corresponds with the Mason-Dixon line too. And what you had was you had populations that were not just poor, but they were in restricted or had difficulty accessing healthcare. So, and in his uh, abstract, higher mortality rates were noted in places with less than ten thousand people and in counties having a large percentage of the population with incomes below poverty level. 
Vaccines should be accessible to all populations, but intensive efforts need to be directed toward groups at high risk of dying from measles who are suffering from a myriad of other health, social, and economic problems. So what is a weaker endorsement than vaccine should be accessible? That's the bottom level because you have restricted, then you have accessible. He didn't say necessary, important, mandated, critical, accessible. And then when you look at, uh, you know, and then so here again is, uh, you know, in that post-World War II, here's measles, uh, mumps on the right-hand screen, you see uh, zero, 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 zero. Mumps was never a high fatality infection. Mm -hmm. uh, rubella, again, n never a high fatality. That one is supposed to be for preventing uh, congenital birth defects. If a, uh, you know, an expected mother is exposed to the infection in a certain time during her pregnancy. And then you have pertussis there. This one surprised me uh, because, you know, everyone's terrified of pertussis, but we're back at the one, 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 zero, zero. You know, there's only one year with two, which was 77. And again, remembering that chart that showed the coverage rates, you know, 70% coverage rates. And then tetanus, I put this one in here because everyone's terrified of tetanus, but look at the deaths reported there, 20, you know, <laughs> zero, zero, one, one. There's six in 1929, uh, two, one, four, you know, not, this has not been a tremendously high mortality rate. You know, everyone hears about that and of course, tetanus is not person-to-person -person, uh, transmissible. So you have, and then I, I have another talk, and I just show that, you know, the people that were dying of measles after World War II was the reason for uh, the war on poverty. You know, you had Appalachia, and I have some great pictures from uh, uh, an old Look magazine that showed... Uh, you know the just the crushing poverty that was being experienced in certain certain isolated places in the country appalachia then you have urban slums etc those are the people and again measles is a serious infection if you don't have access to health care and you're in poor overall health to start with so then rate misrepresentations so in 2011 this is again when i got started uh, i didn't know this but this was the first attempt to eliminate exemptions in a state through the legislature. And so uh, I, I remember hearing on the news, there was just story after story about low rates, low rates, low rates. So during the fall of 2010, the state newspapers and TV stations started having story after story about low vaccination rates. And then, uh, so this is a, a public-private partnership group. You can see their logo up in the left corner, Northwest Vax. And it was showing this lower immunization rates the uh, you know four by three one by three one four coverage levels by state nineteen thirty five months of age and NIS and then you had uh, the callouts here are the blue is the U S national average Washington state red and then eastern and western Washington purple the differentiate there so and then you know if you're an advocate none of the states want to be in the lower half so that's something that they'll they always try to encourage uh, you know to help legislators understand that they're not doing a good job. So uh, now this, when I heard that number, cause this, the claim here is that, you know, if you look at that 64, that that's implying that 35% of the kids have zero vaccines. And then the next idea would be that 35% of kids are exempt. Mm -hmm. Right. So mm -hmm. now this, I just been briefed at a school board meeting that are the exemption rates statewide are only three to 6%. So I, uh, 
And I hadn't seen this chart yet. So I was just hearing this in the news. 35%, I'm thinking, well, that's, I don't know, who are these people? So then uh, when the legislative session started in January, it became apparent the publicity push was to lay the groundwork for the introduction of legislation to end vaccine exemptions for school attendants, which was HB 1015, SB 5005. So I called my representative and I said, what's going on? He says, I ha we, we're in trouble. I must vote for eliminating exemptions. It's the only responsible action. I saw the graph and I asked him, I said, well, send me the graph. I, what are you talking about? I just went through a briefing. It's only three to 6%. He goes, no, 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 no. It's 30%. We're in, you know, this is dangerous. We're in a dangerous dry tinder situation. So then he, he sent me the graph. That's when I got a hold of this. And then uh, I, I contacted the Department of Health and I said, this is not the K-12. What are you doing this? And they said, it's not us. It's the private partners. So if you look at these private partners, we're back to the same collection again, Northwest Vax, you know. So then so what they were doing is they were shopping this graph all over the Olympia and saying that, uh, you know, abuse and overuse of philosophical and personal belief exemptions has resulted in a 35 percent deficit. You will be responsible for the deaths and the inevitable epidemic. So then what I did was I told my legislator and I said, let me help you read this. OK, the NIS does not measure Washington K-12 school vaccination rates. NIS is a is a survey called the National Immunization Survey. 19 to 35 month old kids are not in K-12 school. They're toddlers. They're in preschool. And in, in, unless you're in a certain state type of licensed daycare, you don't have any requirements. Therefore, there are no exemptions. And then 431314 coverage levels is that's how many kids have all 16 of 16 injections. So a 431314 series is four DTAP, three polio, one MMR, three hepatitis B, one chicken pox, and poor for PCV by your 35th month. And if you don't have all 16 of those, then you're rated zero. And that's how you could have a 35% deficit. But if you looked at the individual vaccines, so 93% of the kids had one MMR, 93% of the kids had three or four DTAP, but it's how many had all of those by the measurement milestone. So I explained to him, I said, look, you're being shown a chart of how many children who are not in Washington schools and not subject to exemptions have completed by age three all the doses in a vaccine series that includes vaccines not required for K-12 attendance. So then he came on board with me and he goes, well, that's pretty shady. And so, uh, you know, <laughs> this misrepresentation was being done by the state sanctioned public private partnership vaccine promotion group, Vax Northwest, state and county public health employees and their associations, the official professional industry associations of WA pediatricians and physicians. And a lot of them the you know, the line uh, doctors didn't, you know, they just who's going to check that? You know, there's an expectation right. that if the right. Department of Health or one of these groups gives you a document, that it's going to be accurate. Now, this is the slide that gets sent back to me every time a legislator gets to see one of these or a county health officer, uh, excuse me, a, a county health a politician. When a legislator is shown a chart by a trusted state official or licensed medical professional or public private organization representative, how many legislators would ever think that there was any chance they're being mis intentionally misinformed? 
And that's where the, you know, that's where the collapse is, is that they're being told this by, uh, you know, people from the health department that they're already interacting with on all sorts of other subjects, water quality, uh, you know, what's the scope of practice for different uh, licensed professionals in the state. And then I come in and say, look, they're fibbing, you know, they're, they're telling you the wrong numbers and it's mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of a big lift. So then, uh, but why would they lie? And then it's because the truth did not support ending exemptions. So I went through and took and corrected this graph and uh, showed them that this is not a statistic of K-12 vaccines. 19 to 35 month old kids aren't in K-12. And then I, I took the, you know, the sixth grade vaccination rates and they 96% of the kids have documented all of the shots they're supposed to have. So we had at that time, there was a, a, I was able to get in and meet with the governor, uh, with the governor's policy. And, uh, and I, sh I had this graph here and, uh, or this chart in which goes each county, the left is listing the counties. And then across the top is how many kids are exempt, how many are conditional, how many are adequately immunized. And, uh, you know, if you on the right side and that red box with the highlight, 95%, 96%, 96%, 96%. And so this person, first off, she didn't even know, she'd never seen an actual Washington State Department of Health School report. So she kind of slipped it to her assistant and said, can you figure out if this is real or not? She didn't know if I'd Photoshop this. And she blurted out, I've always just heard that rates are low and falling because that's what they have to say. Otherwise, why, why would you get rid of exemptions? And then she said, did you show this to the bill sponsors? Maybe they'll withdraw the legislation, which was kind of stunning. And I said, well, and I realized, mm -hmm. wow, we're in big trouble now. So, you know, <laughs> that she, they didn't know. So then uh, we were able to push back and we got the ban changed to a healthcare provider signature so that to exempt now, uh, on the exemption form, a doctor in these certain categories, there's five approved types of medical professional, has to say that I have counseled this person on the risks and benefits of vaccination. But when you actually get into the risk and benefit discussion, it's the risk of the infection and the benefit of the injection. There's never any discussion of the risk of the injection. So then what happened in 2019, just before COVID, you know, we had the big measles thing was going on in Clark County, Washington. So uh, Clark County de declares public health emergency due to measles outbreak. And then, uh, then immediately our governor declared a statewide uh, emergency. And so I, you know, in retrospect now, I think this was one of the ways to test and condition the population for a statewide emergency, uh, you know, related to this. And at that time, we had 25 cases in one county and one case in a separate. So out of all of the wow. counties, you know, and yet a statewide state of emergency was called and maintained uh, coincidentally through the last day of the legislative session. Because they needed this to continue to mm. beat the drum for we have to get rid of exemptions. And then mm -hmm. here's the proclamation that he issued, you know, and again, we've now. So this is uh, what you brought up before, I think, Dan, the National Association of Counties. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. That's okay. correct. So this is this is their uh, help in this process. So the state of Washington allows exemptions from some or all vaccines for personal, religious related or medical reasons 
although the legislature is considering a bill that would ban those exemptions for the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine. The county's 78% vaccination rate falls below the 95% target for building herd immunity. So 78%. Now, just if you did the numbers in your head, if only 78% are vaccinated, then you'd calculate in your head, wow, that sounds like there's a 32% exemption rate. And then followed up with our local NPR station, uh, OPB, Oregon Public Broadcasting, and our county health officer. But in Clark County, 2%, 22% of students are not vaccinated for it. So we have that 78% rate. So it's 22%. So you're thinking, wow. Mm-hmm. So based on these articles, what does it appear the Clark County MMR exemption rate is? 22%. What was the actual rate? So the law that established the school requirements in 1980 established the Certificate of Immunization Status Report System, which tracks every individual student down to each of the 17 injections required for K-12 attendance according to the administration date or exemption or out of compliance. So this is just a reference for the law. But so the law requires a specific system of measurement. And then for those of us, you know, if you put your kid in school, you have to list, they, they list the vaccines. You have to put the day, month, and year that they received the vaccination. And this hard copy form follows the student. Now, for from confidentiality, the school knows the identity of the student and their vaccination status. They aggregate the statistic and send it up because according to FERPA and other uh, uh, privacy, you, this information should not be everywhere. That's one of the things that... Uh, of course, with the COVID thing and, you know, trying to have to disclose your VAC status everywhere you turn around has been a real problem. So at kindergarten enrollment, parents list and certify the day, month, and year of each required injection or certificate of exemption. And, and that hard copy form follows the student through high school graduation. This is the basis of the official school vaccination record. What was the CIS list? So Clark County had only a 5.4% exemption rate that year, meaning that the remaining 94% of Clark County students either have two MMR injections or in the process. So then this is just a screen capture of the DOH's website itself saying that the exemption rate's only 5.4% and that it's reliable. And uh, so, and then in our state exemption rate was only 3.1%. Now, what was the origin? So what the county did and the state is that uh, Dr. Melnick, Clark County Public Health, Washington State Department of Public Health, Washington State Health Secretary Wiesman, failed to use the Certificate of Immunization Status School Attendance Vaccine Tracking System that was established in the RCW. They instead chose for the first time and only time to use an alternative, less accurate voluntary online tracking widget called the Washington Immunization Information System. So I went through and was, you know, and I, again, I'm just a guy, right? They've got their health officers telling them. They've got the state secretary of health. And I'm coming in going, well, I don't know what to tell you because their own information says that's not true. And so I went through and, do- and documented. So this IIS, again, it's a voluntary online widget. And then this was their own information, Washington State Department of Health, immuniz- uh, Department of Health Immunization Data, technical notes. It tells what the different systems are, and it says how this is the worst one. And it absolutely should not be used for that. And so I went through, and I was trying to explain. It's just complicated enough that, the, that uh, in Clark County, 
the county uh, is the the county council is also the health board. The same people do it. And it was just complicated enough. So what I was able to do was say, well, listen, he, your health officer is claiming there's only a 78% vaccination rate, except the hard copy forms that the kids have on file say it's 94%, 93, 94%. So the only way what he's claiming can be true is if the parents of 15% of Clark County students have falsified this hard copy document and wrote down the day, month, and year of injections their kid never received. Does that sound reasonable? And, uh, you know, this guy's over there fidgeting and the health officer and the <laughs> board's looking at me and, uh, you know, and one of the, one of the, uh, one of the councils uh, is a retired judge advocate general from the, and he's, and, uh, so, he asked, you know, he he asked the he turns at the end of the board competence at the end of the meeting, he turns to that officer and he goes, this is very compelling. And uh, but they're in this situation where they're the top, their top person in that the Clark County Public Health. He is the public health director and he's fibbing right to their face. And what mm -hmm. do they do? You know, it's a real challenging situation. So I went to the uh, state auditor's office and I met with a lower level person uh, that goes, you know, one of their uh, investigators, he goes, oh man, this is, yeah, you're right. This is terrible. Mm -hmm. But then once it got up to, into the higher levels, they said, they backed out of it and they said, oh no, we can't deal with this. And uh, because this is not, doesn't have a direct financial impact. And I go, what, wait a second, you have county employees, you have state employees that are misrepresenting a material fact to pass legislation. How is that not within the purview of the audit auditor's office? Just stunning to me. So then what I did, cause I'm still trying to explain to these guys, I go, look, you don't wake up one day on January 25th, 2019 and go, Oh my gosh, we've only got a 78% MMR rate because vaccination is a school entry issue. So the only way in 2019 you can have, if the, if the senior class of 2019 has only a 78% MMR rate, that means back in 20, 2006, when they were kindergartners, they were at 78 and were at 78 every year after that and every class that came in after them. So somebody was asleep at the wheel or they're, they're not being truthful or they're misrepresenting that. So I went through and you know did all of this stuff and again, it just jammed them up, but, and I, you know, did graphs and blah, 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 and did a side-by-side -side to show them that they're using the wrong measurement system. But that just showed, uh, you know, proved to me just how uh, the lack of integrity and dishonesty that these people will stoop to in order to achieve their ends. So, you know, it appears state and county employees and officers misrepresented their governing boards, the material fact of how many Clark County K-12 students received. How is this legal? That's what I kept going back to. And I was going, well, do we have an ombudsman? How does, where, where is the remedy here? Now, if you remember in 2019, the, that was the year, you know, there was all kinds of, there was federal hearings. Uh, and there was that boy, Ethan Lindenberger, some 18 year old boy from Ohio that was very excitedly going to get vaccinated for the first time. And he testified and, uh, 
you know, there was uh, a number of federal hearings. But so this false 78% number, it was used to the, go the governor's office to promote the emergency declaration. It was used in the Clark County Council chair to promote the emergency declaration. It was used uh, to, on Washington State and Clark County legislators to promote exemption restriction legislation. It was used in a U.S. federal Senate help hearing. It was used in a U.S. federal congressional commerce and energy hearing. It was used in briefings to Washington Senators Murray and Cantwell's health policy advisors, briefings to Washington House Representative Herrera Butler and other federal representatives, multiple press releases and widespread media distribution. So, and then here's the kicker is that if in fact that the IIS that this health officer was promoting is more accurate, then getting rid of exemptions isn't going to fix it anyway, because mm -hmm. the problem wasn't exemption use. The problem is people are uh, falsifying the vaccination forms, but there's already a law against falsifying the vaccination forms. So that was so even if that if it, if it was more accurate, the solution isn't the solution. You have to find a way to get people to fill the forms out accurate. And then the second kicker is, is that this outbreak was an inbreak and it was and it existed in a small ethnic church community in a private religious school, a private religious Sunday school and a private religious daycare. And there were no cases outside of this group. Wow. And yet what they did. What they were doing um, in the media was they every time there was a case, you know, they had the running cumulative case. Well, measles is not a permanent condition. You get measles and you get over measles. So at any given mm -hmm. time that, uh, you know, to run a cumulative count so that you got up to 60 or whatever it was at the end over the several months, that all of these things are just to create panic in the community. And then they would take and every time a they would take the travel diary and claim that these were exposure points. You know, it was the whole thing was injured. We've just seen the same thing with the COVID, you know, the running, uh, the running count case mm -hmm. count things on the bottom of the Chiron, et cetera. So, uh, and so anyway, Carl, just uh, very quickly, Carl, yeah. um, just for the uh, viewers, there's a lot of people from all over that are watching this. Clark County is uh, the, the Seattle, greater Seattle area. Is that correct? Uh, no, actually, it's southwest Washington. It's just across from Portland, Oregon. I see. OK, so, so that, it's so, a yeah, Vancouver yeah. area. That's correct. Yes. Vancouver yep. battleground. No, that's 100 okay. percent correct. Yeah. King County is Seattle. King County, that's the one I was thinking of. Yes, sir. Okay, thank you. So anyway, so they what they do, they they uh, they took away, so the, the legislation that they were able to pass in this panic, you know, creating this panic in the state and doing everything, what did it do? It took away the philosophical and personal exemption, but that the, the group that was actually having the measles cases used religious exemptions. And then I live in this area, and I actually had contact with some of the families and uh, and, you know, the, the rationale is that these they travel internationally on a regular basis, both personally to visit family members in places where measles is still endemic. And they also do mission trips to various areas where measles is still endemic. And so the guy, the father explained to me, he says, I don't want you know, when my daughter is, uh, I don't want her to discover that her MMR didn't work 
if she's doing, uh, you know, if, if she's doing cleanup work in the Philippines or somewhere like that, when I can just have her get a case, a natural case, which is a lifelong immunity, uh, robust immunity here, instead of getting the MMR, which may or may not work and, and may or may not wear off in the future. So these people were, this was not a, uh, a random or uh, unconsidered uh, action that they took. They were doing this intentionally in the same way that our parents took us to measles parties in the in the 50s and 60s because, you know, it's like, look, let's get this out of the way. And then we've done the next thing. So then uh, the next thing, so that was 2011. 2012, I happened to just find out that there was another group uh, that they were doing the same thing in Vermont. So they took and copy and pasted. So public health, the CDC took and copy and pasted the same plan that they'd used in Washington onto Vermont. And so the, the Vermont Department of Health published this map. Uh, and, you know, these 71 schools have an over 6% philosophical exemption rate, and the exemption rate is going up. And that's how they panicked the legislators. And uh, so I looked at the data. And again, when a legislator is shown a chart by a trusted state official or licensed medical professional or public-private organization representative, how many legislators would ever think that there was any chance they were being intentionally misinformed? So I dug into the, 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 the amazing thing about Vermont, and this is when it really locked into me that this was not about the numbers of children vaccinated or unvaccinated, is that Vermont is so small, they have less than 7,000 children per grade level. Washington has about 80,000 per grade level. California has about 500,000 per grade level. So mm -hmm. when you look at Vermont, and uh, you know this is the 29-2010, so this was just a year before I was helping them. And so only 341 children out of 6,713 had an exemption. And there was 273 schools offering kindergarten with enrollments from one to 130, 253 schools had four uh, or fewer exemptions. 134 of the schools had zero exemptions at all. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Vermont small population. So the top the top gray box is showing the public schools, 6,226. There was 278 kids. So then they the, then the claim that the exemption rate is going up. So this was from 2007, 2008. Now, this used to be all online until I got in there, downloaded it, created some effective documents. Now you have to file a FOIA to get this information. So what did I found? Well, I found their own documentation that showed that the exemption rate went up in seven, eight, eight, nine because they added the chickenpox vaccine to the schedule. Hmm. Now, even, uh, even a strongly pro-vaccine person can say, you know, is that one really necessary? Uh, for example, the United Kingdom does not use the chickenpox vaccine. And their their strategy to manage chickenpox in the United Kingdom is to let it to let uh, permit natural infection. That's part of another talk that I do. So then uh, the so the philosophical exemption rate in 2007, 2008 was 128, and then it jumped up to 278. So what happened was, is that uh, I calculated out that adding the chickenpox vaccine doubled the number of schools with exemptions to, uh, above 6%. And, uh, and then the next thing is, is that the average Vermont school has only 28 students. 
uh, kindergarten students so that uh, it only takes two students to get above 6% exemption rate. So then the next thing that the, uh, the next rate misrepresentation they'll do is they'll make the case that uh, an, an exempt child is 100% unvaccinated. So this is again from Vermont and, the, and, and they had beautiful data that they no longer place online because of me. <laughs> but so this was, uh, so no school in Vermont has more than 13 kindergarten students with a philosophical exemption, Vermont's population distorts. So, uh, so you have the school name on the left and then the total enrollment. So in North Bennington grade school, they had a 14 kindergarten total enrollment. And then 13 of the 14 had all of the DTAP shots. 13 of the 14 had all of the polio. 13 of the 14 had all of the MMR. 13 of the 14 had all of the hepatitis B. And 11 of the 13 had the chicken pox. But the way they measure exemptions, because seven students had an exemption, all of them for only one of the required vaccines, that school is considered to have a 50% exemption rate. Wow. That's part of the manipulation. So mm -hmm. uh, this subject is much more nuanced than exemptions equal unvaccinated children. So what you have is uh, you have three chickenpox exemptors and one exemption each for the other vaccines, not seven completely unvaccinated children. And this was a very effective when the legislators saw this chart and they started to ask their Vermont Department of Health, why are you measuring it this way? This is incredibly misleading. And they said, well, this is what this is, again, intergovernmental agreement in order for them to get their money. This is the way they have to do this, the, the charts. And then an exemption is required to opt out of any one injection. So Sudbury School, the other part they did is they had no report threshold. So here we've got a school with three kindergartners. And uh, one of those kindergartners, so if you see that all three have the DTAP, all three have polio, all three have MMR, all three have hepatitis B, <laughs> wow. one kid is skipping the chickenpox shot, but that gives that school a 33% exemption rate. And when I was watching, the, a couple of years later, they, they were able to get uh, pass a bill, but the... I was watching the testimony at the at the uh, House, you know, and you had legislators saying, I don't want to do this, but I've got schools in my district with a 33 percent exemption rate. And I was screaming at my TV. Yeah, it's Sudbury, <laughs> three kids and one of them skipping chicken pox. So then that means on that map, one of those red dots was generated because one child didn't take the chicken pox vaccination. Amazing. And then uh, uh, and that's just showing that that school. So if they were honest, they would say we have 71 schools with an average one to four students with an exemption often only for chicken pox. So the other, another misrepresentation is that all students are either vaccinated, complete or exempt. And that's ignoring, ignoring the fact that there's other statuses. So what they, they have different names. So in, in uh, Washington, it's out of compliance. Some states are non-compliant, conditional, and other terms. And then part of that is because the ACIP schedule has been adding injections. You know, older people, if you don't have kids or grandkids, and somebody says that, well, they, these guys don't want to get vaccinated, and we remember the three DTAP we got, or two or three DTAP, and maybe, a, you know, an oral polio and a, uh, 
smallpox. You know, it's like, what's these people problem? Well, today the schedules, if you got all the flu mm -hmm. shots, it's like 54 injections. In Washington, we have uh, Washington State, if you're in state licensed facilities, birth through high schools, 25 required injections. And that's separate from a flu shot every year and not counting the, you know, those are the ones that are required. And then the ACIP schedule would be like 57 injections, I think, if you had them all. So here's what happened in Connecticut. So Connecticut has one of the best vaccination rates in the country. So that they had, uh, they have a 2.5% exemption rate, which is the national average. And then their, their uh, kindergarten documented complete by November one of the school year, 90, over 96% of the kindergartners had two injections documented. Now, when the exemption rate's 2.5, the difference between uh, 96.2 and 2.5 is that measles is now, uh, the MMR is a two-shot series. And so if you don't have that second shot by November 1 of the year, you know, you can, and, and uh, Connecticut allows you to join kindergarten if you're five by the uh, December 31. So you can be a four-year-old and not actually even uh, eligible for the shot. And then the uh, 2020 America's Health Rankings, they had Connecticut's the fifth highest rated for the toddlers, that NIS thing, which is what Washington was using to, uh, you know, to try to trick the legislators in 2011. So those two slides themselves should show there's no reason, there's no problem in Connecticut whatsoever. So then the, their Department of Health comes out with this report that says uh, that 134 schools reported MMR rates below 95%. So what's the problem is that they're sorting by the M MMR immunization rate and not by religious exemption use. So because and again, you read this and you think, okay, these uh, these 134 schools have exemption rates higher than five percent. That's not true. That's not how they prepared the report. So here is one of the schools with less than 95% MMR. This school has zero religious exemptions. So the blue part of the graph is showing that's how many kids have two MMR documented by November 1. And then the uh, red-brown, so they, they call their kids that are incomplete non-compliant. So Connecticut schools with less than 95% MMR is not primarily caused by religious exemptions. Many schools with less than 95% have zero or less than 5% exemptions. In most schools with an actual 5%, it's not even five students because the average Connecticut school has only 60 students where each is 1.6. Now, non-compliance is caused by mi missing records or because the second MMR injection is CDC scheduled between the fourth and seventh birthday, and they enroll kindergarten students who are age five by December 31. These students are not exempting, but simply still in the process of being old enough to get their second shot. Prior to the late 1990s, a single MMR was considered complete for life. And uh, this is a data collection issue, not an exemption issue, but they're intentionally misrepresenting it because they wanna get rid of exemptions. So I went through and I'm excruciatingly detailed, but this just, uh, I went <laughs> I through love and, it. well, I went through and looked at this. And so I found, uh, you know, 14 schools with less than 95% MMR. And the majority of them is because of that non-compliance issue. 
And part of noncompliance is McKenney Viento law, federal law says that you must allow homeless students to attend regardless of their paperwork. And then we have various other, you know, people that are lacking documentation coming into the country now. And I don't know mm -hmm. how that's, you know, what, how that, what kind of impact that's, you know, how they're diluting this. But, uh, you know, of those, of those schools, 63 of them of the, uh, have less than 5% religious exemption rate. So uh, then, so then they came back. So uh, their legislative session got interrupted by COVID. They came back to do it again. And they came up with this report. It's, they said that 120 schools had MMR vaccination rates below 95%, including 26 schools with rates below 90. And then they, they have, uh, in 2019, the schools with the lowest level of MMR was Museum Academy at 53, Lincoln Bassett at 55, Sand School at 60, and Children's at 60. Schools with the highest percentage of religious exemptions were Housatonic Valley. Anyway, the problem with this is that if high exemption rates are causing low vaccination rates, there shouldn't be two lists. There should be one list. There should be a list of schools with high exemption rates causing low vaccination rates. Right. So then when I looked at the schools with the lowest MMR, where they, they're saying that have 53 to 60, those schools have zero. One of them, Sand School, has 0% exemptions. The other school, Museum, has 3%, Lincoln Bass at 1.8, and the Children's School has 13.3%. But the real issue is on the far right, the non-compliant. And then the other problem with this is that according to Connecticut law, you don't report any kindergarten that's less than 30 students. So this, I had to, I had to dig to find this information because that was not included in the publicly available reports. So you had the Department of Health violating their own reporting requirements. Uh, excuse me, uh, on the next one, I'll show the next one. So that's where the lowest, so this one here, so these, so they're using these schools and they're claiming that the low vaccination rates are caused by high exemption rate, which is absolutely false. It's caused by high non-compliance. And then, you know, in the one school, so the, the, you know, and again, none of these schools have even a hundred students, you know, using percentage when one student is greater than 1% is deceptive all by itself. Sure. So then the schools with over 20% religious exemption, they're below the 30, 30 number. So you have Housatonic School has 22 kids. And so uh, five is all it takes to exceed that 20%. Giant Steps has two students. So one student gives it a 50% exemption rate. <laughs> North Stonington Academy, again, another two student Christian school, you know, basically a little private school. And then the speech academy is not even a school, it's a therapy center. So they were scrambling to find something that they could claim was an example of a high religious exemption rate. Again, if high religious exemption rates are causing low vaccination rates, it's one list. There shouldn't be two lists. And then this is just showing, you know, that I go through to make sure that I'm accurate. And then, uh, so the question I prepared to report, you know, is the Connecticut Department of Public Health acting as an honest broker in the information and data provided regarding the usage of religious exemptions? 
And then in Massachusetts, they had uh, they're 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 claiming why they need to do this, that they're saying that uh, in 1954, measles infected almost every child by HIV and killed 6,000 children per year. That's absolutely false. Absolutely false. That report that I had back there barking, it, it was 400 to 500 per year average. So this is a, mm -hmm. what, 10 times, ag, uh, and this is by, again, health action. This is by their health department. Just, just incredible, wow. Uh, wow. just incredible misrepresentation of data in order to try to scare people to get them to do that. So then the question is, well, what's going on for, this was in 20, this was last fall. So what were they doing? Well, they lost so much ground with COVID that, uh, you know, nobody's believing them now. And there was a, uh, uh, so all of a sudden, a, a four measles outbreak is an eruption. Monica Gandhi, measles outbreak erupts among unvaccinated children in Ohio daycare. Very important uh, to trust our public health messaging. So they're trying to now, you know, trying to scare us back into compliance with measles. And then what, uh, mm -hmm. uh, four confirmed cases of measles in the Columbus area child care facility. Now, one of the things that they didn't talk about was that uh, this is the uh, Somali population. And this is part of another <laughs> talk that I just started doing. So the Somalis uh, have statistically a higher autism rate than uh, the general population. And one of the things that they, they don't even have a word for autism. There is no Somali word for autism. So it's something that only happened when they started to come to the U.S. And they were, you know, at least some of them are connecting vaccination to that. And that's the reason that this group's, that, you know, this is, again, not laziness or sloppiness. These are people that are very consciously directing their healthcare decisions. <laughs> so then... Uh, you know, and again, it's like, uh, you know, it was four kids. It ended up, I think it ended up being 60 total or something like that. But I, I have that in another talk that I just did for children's health defense. If somebody wanted to do that, you go to my, go to my sub stack. I've got everything there. I go through this step by step. And one of the issues, you know, the person in uh, Connecticut or excuse me, Ohio was talking about is that they'd never seen a case of measles before. And so they didn't know what to do. And they were very, uh, uh, confused. And that that one specific stock photo there, you'll see that in pretty much every single measles article that ever came. So this is the now trying to reassert some kind of level of confidence in public health after they have destroyed it with all of the COVID uh, misinformation. <laughs> so then the mm -hmm. uh, this would be the hope that we have now is that uh, here are some some kind of funny Twitter uh, posts, uh, tweets, uh, <laughs> the CDC recommends simply walking into Mordor, which is, uh, you know, that one meme that's out there. And the CDC says, when you've reached the center of a Tootsie Pop, your quarantine is over. And then this picture of a woman with her mask over her eyes, uh, CDC recommends your mask now cover your eyes, nose, and mouth. Uh, <clears throat> And this is by the classical studies memes for Hellenistic teens. The CDC recommends bringing the giant wooden horse into the city. It seems nice. And then uh, the CDC just announced it is okay to text your ex. Happy New Year. Just thinking about you at 1201 on January 1st. 
So there are there's some hope now that there is mm-hmm. some kind of questioning that the population is having as to the, you know, uh, it's kind of like with the Catholic Church and papal infallibility is that, you know, it doesn't matter what they say and whether it conflicts with what they said last time, it's because it's the Pope <laughs> uh, that it must be infallible. And then uh, this is a good one. The CD said it's not Omicron unless it comes from the Omicron region of France. Otherwise, it's just sparkling COVID. And uh, <laughs> uh, the CDC is now recommending the Carnival Cruise Buffet. I saw one that I didn't get a capture of, which was the uh, the CDC recommends eating off the floor of the Waffle House. <laughs> but uh, oh. anyway, so, you know, that's uh, and uh you know, that oh, just that's is, fantastic. Well, I, that's sort I, of a, uh, go ahead, sir. Well, I was going to say, I, I uh, first of all, Obamacare was a big part of this because that was part of the whole record-keeping idea so that they can get a catalog of all of our health care issues from uh, cradle to grave. I mean, that's part of the buildup to now what they're doing, and that is trying to map everything so that we have no way we can escape the vaccine program. And uh, they're even talking now, the the CBDC, the central bank digital currency, that you will not be allowed to do transactions unless you meet all the criteria for their vaccine program. This is what I'm talking about when I said the the waterproof box. They're literally trying to close every avenue to say no to vaccines, and that's why it's so important that we speak up now. It's terrifying. That CBDC is terrifying, you know, mm-hmm. and the idea that uh, that you, you know they would uh, be able to turn it on, turn it off, and uh, you know, it's bad enough that they were. Uh, you know, confiscating money from bank accounts of people based on their speech. You know, I've been following the Twitter files and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, the, uh, uh, it's, uh, you know, this is the, the one of the things that I have discovered is that if you, if you think of it like a silo is that, you know, each of us have, a lot of us have specific things that we work on and we're in our silo, like the vaccine silo. And we think we, we know how bad that is because we study it closely but then there's other silos and we uh, inaccurately assume that it must be okay over there, right? And so I've heard people say, well, the vaccines just need to be treated like the drugs are. Well, no, not actually, because the drugs are killing people, just conventional pharmaceuticals are killing and maiming people all the time. So that silo for myself is the fluoroquinolones. I had a catastrophic reaction personally to a Cipro antibiotic, blew out my tendons, uh, really messed me up for a long time. And then wow. you have the opiate silo. And then and then you have, uh, I don't know if you're following, but the fluoride lawsuit right now where the EPA is being sued and has been in court for six years now because uh, there's uh, uh, definitive proof now that exposure to fluoride in, in infants reduces their, uh, reduces their IQ equivalent to lead. And they've been fighting taking any kind of action there. And that's its whole own thing. And then I noticed uh, when I was looking at your website that you're doing uh, the election stuff. And I would recommend if you've never had Marley Hornick on from the New York Citizens Audit, they are doing some amazing work. And uh, they have an expert, a man named Art, that uh, has been going through 
and their database, you know, New York's a big state, a lot of people in there. And he has discovered that there is a spiral algorithm in their database that is able to sequester profiles such that the county people, when they when they type it in, right, they can run a query and it doesn't look like anything's wrong. The state people that run the state database, they can look at it and it won't look like anything's wrong, but they have a million, couple million of cl what they call cloned accounts where you have a person with the same name, birth date, address, but a separate state board of election ID, which is what the vote is assigned to. Mm -hmm. And uh, they've created this database, has, is, has an algorithm with these different identification. There's a coding in there that they're calling a rep unit. And this is not my, I'm not a math guy at all, but it's a fascinating that they, you know, they, they've shown that the only way that this could have been created is if it's been all in one day. It's not like, uh, you know, in a database should be uh, chronological. You know, I registered on this day, my number should be this, and then the next guy should get this number, and the next guy gets this number, and that goes out the window when you see their research. So I, I highly recommend having Marley Hornick on and Art. They are just fascinating. And when you see that, is that the, the fraud can be done now where the candidates don't even know. So one of the challenges they that you have, imagine this, they figured out that like over 40% of the candidates, the number of these uh, fake profiles exceeds the margin of their victory. So imagine you're an elected officer, the person comes in and says, hey, I have proof that you didn't win your election and I need you to help me prove that. That puts <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that chance, yeah. Yeah, where does, what's a candidate, you know, what's a, what are you supposed to do then? What if you're a nice guy and you believe you honestly won? And, you know, and the polarization in the parties is so much that if you're one of our one of the overlords, then you could pick which person that you would, you know, you, you, the, 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 the candidate doesn't even have to know at this point. That's the, the incredible part in this idea that it takes a mass of people. It doesn't. The way that they're running this uh, this uh, database, it whoever it is that's the whiz is the only person that needs to know what's going on in there. But anyway, so that's another silo. And, and if you just look at it, is that if is, uh, you know, you take whatever it is, any subject matter expert is can tell you everything that's wrong with that. Now, I automatically assume that any other silo I look at is just as bad as the worst mm -hmm. one that I'm experienced in now. And you may be underestimating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, well, Carl, I have to tell you, I don't I don't know if uh, this has been fascinating. I don't know if uh, have you worked with Dell Bigtree at all? Do you know Dell? Have you worked with him? I actually we both testified in Washington in 2019. I, I know him. We've okay. shook hands and we talked a little bit, but he's got his own thing going. And and uh, but yeah, no, I appreciate his work. And Aaron Siri just had a. Uh, a very substantial win in Mississippi, which has never had an exemption, and they've got a temporary restraining order giving them an exemption out of school vaccines. Well, but, uh, I'll tell you what this is a this is a wonderful program. I uh, and and uh, Thumper, uh, the cool thing about this is Carl's in your state, so uh, our yes. Parent uh, platform, the Patriot Soapbox, is out of Spokane. So, well, not uh, actually. It's actually out of uh, uh, Virginia, but uh, I am. Well, in yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, 
Well, I have, after this show last night, it, I finished at 2 a.m. I slept in this morning. I was a little late getting here. My apologies, Dan. No uh, but uh, Carl, your work is absolutely incredible. Uh, thank you. And uh, from a fellow Washingtonian, uh, this is uh, this is huge stuff. And, uh, you know, I've I've uh, I worked on the Culp campaign. I was uh, uh, Lauren Culp's Eastern Washington coordinator for his campaign. And I saw so much. I mean, I it just the first time I'd ever worked a campaign. And I saw so much stuff that, you know, you certainly have identified the corruption deep within the bowels of the machine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The, the, the no see uh, that, uh, play this game. And, um, uh, I'm, I'm just in awe of your work. And, uh, as a matter of fact, I I was late getting here, but I started recording the program (laughs) It's certainly after I heard what you were uh, saying, and uh, uh, hopefully Dan has a complete copy. Uh, he has another person that actually. Yeah, Andy's been uh, monitoring. He's he's uh, going to record the whole thing. Uh, but, um, I really I, do I really appreciate wanna, your work. Absolutely, well, I, fantastic. I really want to get uh, Carl as one of our speakers at a red pill. Oh uh, gosh, yes. This is beautiful stuff, and I have to tell you that. Uh, uh, when I ran into uh, Carl in Arizona, he was doing a, a program for a local patriot group, and it just blew me away because all the stuff that he was talking about is exactly what we've been trying to expose with the COVID vaccine program. Because, uh, Carl, as you very well, very appropriately said, this is not about a particular disease. This is about making sure that everybody is absolutely vaccinated. And when we find out what is in these vaccines, it's all about population control. It's all about killing off people. And uh, I mean, I'm sorry that I have to say it that uh, bluntly, but that's exactly what they're doing. They're either sterilizing or creating ongoing health problems with people. Uh, and they want it to be a waterproof box where we have to get vaccinated or we can't even live in our own country. And that is the antithesis of what the United States is about. Yeah, I, I agree with that. That was what that was. Uh, and, you know, that's why I show Vermont is because, you know, even in Washington, I was amazed at how high the vaccination rates were in Washington. And I started to do the financial calculation, and I and I realized, you know, if if uh, if all they wanted to do was make money, they would just leave the people using exemptions alone because they weren't making any kind of fuss. They were quietly doing. The majority of the population doesn't even know exemptions exist, so they just go to the pediatrician and let them, you know, turn their child over, and then the pediatrician does what they do. And uh, and for a lot of people, that they apparently get through it okay you know i was at one talk and a and a uh, there was a toxicologist there and we were discussing the vaccines and reactions and such and he says you know the fact that the majority of people appear to be okay after the vaccines that doesn't speak to the safety of vaccines it speaks mm-hmm. to the resiliency of the human body human being and i thought that was a really interesting uh and this guy was and he he was like a petroleum 
Institute guy. So we were talking about some other parts, but that was, that was an interesting thing to me, but that was, uh, and then when it got to, you know, so I was looking at the few thousand uh, injections they were missing in Washington, doing the math calculation. And it's like, man, this is not even a rounding error for these pharmaceutical companies. And then when I got to Vermont and we're talking at literally 273 children and, uh, you know, half of those are just skipping the chicken pox shot. Then I realized that what was going on was they were marching their ways towards creating a regulatory and legal framework in which it's impossible to avoid vaccination. Mm -hmm. And then the next logical thing beyond that is, well, what about statins? What if you have a blood sugar condition? What if you have that? And, uh, you know, I've seen studies where they they would have a uh, that you're uh, in the bathroom, your toilet automatically every time you use the restroom, it tests it. And, uh, you know, if you're high or low in something, then boom, then that sends out a, uh, you know, your drone delivers uh, whatever the medication is you're supposed to have. And then the medication in the pill, they have uh, uh, sensors now that test for compliance. You know, when when the doctors say doctor's orders, they don't mean that, you know, colloquially, oh, it's doctor's orders. You know, they mean like when, you know, when they say that, the, you know, the, you're, you are, uh, you know, you're being a, a you're non-compliant, you know, this is a non-compliant patient, but, uh, you know, I just want to say, Surgeon I appreciate general, it. you know, that's right. These are orders. <laughs> I'm, I'm former military. So, uh, you know, mm -hmm. you got your generals and now you have your doctor's orders. Exactly. So, you know, and, and I'll, I, I may be in, let's see, I'm, I might be in Spokane on May 20th. Um, there's going to be a, a, an event that's going to be a listing event, a COVID listing event. There was one in Wenatchee earlier this year and uh, uh, Informed Choice Washington. And there was another group, but I, I know them through Informed Choice Washington. And they had uh, 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 NBA, former NBA player was part of that Stock, Stockton. Stockton, I think. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Stockton. Yes, he did. A, so he was part of that. Uh, they did a listening in Wenatchee, and they're going to be trying to do a, a comparable event in Spokane uh, on May 20, and I might be part of that. But, uh, you know, it's uh, uh, it's been just amazing to me to watch over the years that uh, in some ways it's that they that they haven't changed the playbook. It's the same the same thing. You know, ideally, you have some type of infection in your state, but you you know, you, you start to say, Hey, this is a, a you know, we're dangerous rates are dangerously low and it's the fault of these uh, selfish free riding uh, medical Luddite exemptors. And if we don't, you know, we can't afford the indulgence of exemptions anymore. And uh, you know, these people need to be forced into compliance and it's been that theme all the way through. And, uh, you know, so I've been trying to, you know, I feel like I'm put, I got my finger in the dike is what I'm trying to do. I realize on the broader, you know, on a global scale. And, but if I can just keep, you know, in this particular, in this state, you know, maintain our ability to exempt, because if we have the ability to exempt, then they can create whatever kind of cocktail, but we can choose not to do it. And I'm trying to explain to the adults is that if they take away the ability for you to exempt your child, what they're doing is without hearing evaluation or review, declaring that you are incompetent to direct the preventive medical care of your minor child. 
And this is not, it's not like withholding medication to a sick child. That's separate. That's therapeutic. This is preventive for something they may never be exposed to or may be exposed to and successfully negotiate. And so logically, if you are incompetent to direct the medical care of your dependent child, are you by definition not also incompetent to direct your own medical care? Right. And that's what the adults are missing. And we've been trying to warn them that for a decade. And people are now starting to realize that if you don't have the sovereignty of your personal bodily integrity, then you don't have anything. You don't have freedom. Great point. Uh, Carl, we're, we're out of yeah. time. And I absolutely hate we, we've been beyond actually. And I, I hate to get into uh, you no, don't say time, but that's OK. I I will be in touch with you. Let's uh, exchange some information. I will be in touch with you. Fantastic. Uh, I will give you Thumper's information in the Actually, I, area. I, I posted Ronald. my contact information in the okay. chapter for Carl. Okay. I'll download it and we'll make, make sure we're all in touch then. Okay. And uh, your website is Carl, spelled K A R L K A N T H A K dot substack.com and that's your website uh, that's correct you can go there and get information on carl this is a fabulous uh discussion carl and all i can tell you is i can't wait to get you back and i and i've been posting your uh, substack link out in our chat for our viewers and uh so uh expect to uh see a few more people on your substack very good well i'll tell you what uh uh, Randy, when you look at the, uh, if you look at my, my latest post, I did 20 minutes at the Capitol. I saw on, that. Uh, I see that. It's up on my yeah, screen. Right here. Yeah. Watch that. And uh, I was there with uh, represent uh, Jim uh, was there and we did. So anyway, so. Okay. Well, All right, again, well, thank you so thank much you for being our guest. I will be back in touch with you. I want to thank our listeners for joining us, for connecting the dots. From the lakes of Minnesota to the hills of Tennessee, across the plains of Texas, oh, from sea to shining sea, from Detroit down to Houston, New York to LA, where there's pride in every American heart, and it's time we stand and say. There ain't no doubt.